Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8. And if you are here last week, I apologize for boring you with all those details and things. This, uh, this week, I'm much more excited about getting to the, the meat of this, and we can truly see here um, how it is that God works in the hearts of our, uh, of our hearts. So, Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at the interpretation of the parable, starting at verse 11. Before we do, let us pray. Father, we are very grateful and very thankful that we can have access to your word and know your, your ways and understand you and what you've done for us and understand ourselves and understand our world and make sense of the crazy chaos and understand even our own hearts. If you allow us to see and allow us to understand what is truly going on in us. Father, you know where every one of us is at. You know every individual in this room deeply and intimately, and, and you know the nuances and the depths of the heart, and we can't even fully understand our own hearts. Father, I ask that you would, you would allow us all to see ourselves before your, your word, that you would, by your spirit, diagnose us and allow us to come to a a good understanding of ourselves and not allow us to live in darkness about who we are or where we're at before you. I pray for every person here that you would work mightily in them through your word, for we ask this in the beloved name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Starting at verse 11, now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You know what is so powerful about this truth is that it hits every person in this room. Every one of you is spoken to right now by God through his word about where you're at and what's going on in your life. You're either sitting here this morning with a hard heart, a shallow heart, a half-hearted heart, or a well-prepared heart. That's the reality. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the heart, and each of us, we can't even sometimes discern our own hearts. And my prayer is, as I did pray, that we would see our hearts this morning. Because this text makes it quite clear how it is we might even diagnose it. However, we have to realize something. Before we get into this text and start to explain it, we have to realize from the start that just because someone might have a hard heart right now doesn't mean the Spirit won't break it up right now. And it become good soil. 
In other words, these aren't fixed states that everyone in the world falls into and can't get out of. Paul once had a hard heart, if you recall, when he was named Saul. But God changed it in a hurry, didn't it? Many of the hard-hearted Pharisees, it says in the book of Acts, believed and turned to Jesus. There are also those who, who've backslidden, they stumble in the faith, and then the Spirit then cultivates their heart, and they receive the word like good soil. There are those who seem choked out by the cares and pleasures of the world, and then God gets a hold of them, and they too become good soil. Then there are those who are good soil, who are fruitful and plentiful, but they go through seasons of dryness and struggle for a while, perhaps even stumbling in, in, in cases. And this is, this is just the nature of what it's like. Even by your own experience, you could see that this isn't just a once-for-all fixed reality. So we need, to be, we need to be careful that we don't go through this parable having some kind of fatalistic perspective. It's just the way it is. It's not true. We need to hear and understand and diagnose and see ourselves and look at our own hearts and say, Lord Jesus, who am I? Where am I at? Because perhaps even this morning you're going to find that you, you have some things in your life that are choking out your faith that you need to deal with. And so as we look at these different soils this morning, you personally ask God, say, God, search me, know me, and help me to see where I am in this reality. So with that as a broader context and just an introductory comment as to how it is we should approach this particular parable, let's begin looking at what Jesus means by these soils. He begins with the hard heart, which is, I'm sorry, hard soil, which is a hard heart. In verse 12, that's what he says. He says, there's those who fall along the pathway, and the pathway is hard, and so hard that the, so- the seed cannot penetrate it. And it gets, as it said earlier in this, in this parable, as, as he first presented it, is trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air come and take it. Now, what does that mean? He says this is what it means. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. This means that the word of the gospel is delivered to their, to their ears. It goes to the ears as you're hearing right now, but it doesn't go down into the heart. It isn't believed. Even if it sat there for a while, even if that seed sat there for a while, it won't work its way in because the devil and his minions come and take it away, and it's too hard to receive it. You know the devil's number one trick? His number one trick is to crush potential faith by causing one to doubt the goodness and the promises of God. This is how he comes and plucks it away so often. This is what he's done from the very beginning, isn't it? If you recall in the garden, Satan was immediately, he went immediately after God's goodness. And it caused Adam and Eve to doubt the promises of God. Did God really say? You know, here's the deal, Adam and Eve. Well, God, you know what God, he he doesn't want you to become like him. What's he saying? He's causing him to doubt the goodness of God. He's holding back from you. Don't you understand? He knows that the moment you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. He's holding back on you. Look what he's doing. 
He, it's not, the moment you eat it, he said, you surely die. That's not going to happen. He just doesn't want you to do it. And so he reasons and causes us to question, causes us to doubt the goodness of the God. And you know, what's presented to us in the gospel, what's laid before you is the goodness of God in Christ Jesus and what he's done for you. You've done nothing but sin. And you've done nothing but violate his grace and his goodness and his kindness. And then God presents to you, lays before you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. His mercy, his forgiveness. And you know what? Satan comes along and says, no, there's no way. There's no way. You, you, aren't, um, you aren't near good enough. That's some cheap trick to think that you could receive that goodness and that grace. Free. Come on, think about it. He's always messing with you, causing you to doubt, causing you to question the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. He's always having you think about yourself, your life, and what you've done, what you said, what you've thought, who you really are. And knowing if you come to know who you are in your private heart and you think of what's offered to you in Jesus Christ... It seems too good to be true. Like, how can he love me? How can he offer me that? How can he forgive me knowing what I've done? And that's what the devil likes to do. How could he? How? He whisper at you, how? How is that possible? Think about it. He's a holy God. You're unholy. He's righteous. You're unrighteous. And we start to believe it. And next thing you know, we start to doubt. The evil one is great with circumstances as well because it isn't just the words you hear, it's the things that happen in life that start to conflict. He's always whispering at those opportune times. You know, when the money's low, the job is lost, the car breaks down, the kids need dental work, and it all happens at the same time. Yeah. What does he go after then? He goes after the truth about God's goodness. He attacks the promises of God's care and help. He goes after it, and and he calls God a liar. But all you have to do is look at the cross itself. And when you look at it, it's heinous, it's wicked, it's evil, it's criminal, it's ugly, and everything about it makes you look at it and say, how could anything good come out of this? If you were there, and you're not there at the resurrection yet, and all you look at that, you think... God has forsaken him. This is the Messiah? This doesn't make any sense. This is about as crazy and as ridiculous as you could ever imagine. If you ever want to question the goodness of God, then was was your opportunity to look upon the cross and say, God has forsaken his own son. And what did the devil be doing? God is wicked. Forsake his own son to let him do this. And the heart can, be, can believe the lie as opposed to the truth. Because if you were willing to hold on for a few days, you would see, oh, that was the salvation of the world. The worst thing that ever happened in the world, the most evil, most wicked event that ever happened in the world was for the salvation of the world. Wow. Wow. This life has enough hardship in it to certainly bring God's goodness into question. And if the devil is that good with those whose hearts are right with God, 
Could you imagine how easy it is to pluck the word from those whose hearts are hard? The hard heart can listen and listen and listen and nothing ever seems to get through. Never comes to realize how simple it really is. It never comes to realize how holy God really is. It never comes to realize how great the grace of Jesus Christ really is. And as a result, it never believes and trusts and clings to God. It's always believing and trusting in the lies presented by the world. But perhaps sadder than the stony heart is the next heart. That's, I, I said, sorry, the hard heart is the next heart, the stone heart, the stone bed heart, as I have in your, in your notes. This is the stony soil, which Jesus interprets, interprets in verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Jesus talks about this person believing and having joy. They didn't just make a mental ascent. They believed and actually experienced the joy that comes from believing. But what happened? It didn't last. And the promises of God found no root in their heart. As Spurgeon said of this particular heart, Whether you preach the terrors of the law or the love of Calvary, they are alike stirred in their souls. And the liveliest impressions are apparently produced. They have resolved, but they have have procrastinated. They are not the sturdy enemies of God who clothe themselves in steel, but they seem to bear their breasts and lay them open to the minister. They have no deep convictions, but they they leap into Christ on a sudden and profess an instantaneous faith in him. And that faith has all the appearance of being genuine. When we look at it, the seed has really sprouted. There is a kind of life in it. There is apparently a green blade. Perhaps we receive them into the church, but in a week or two, they are not so regular as they used to be. We gently reprove them, and they explain that they meet with such opposition that they are obliged to yield a little. Another month, and we lose them altogether. The reason is that they have been laughed at or opposed to opposed a little, and they have gone back, end quote. You know, the scary thing about this person is that they come to, come to Jesus and they experience the joy of believing, but they can't handle the wind or the storms, and so they fall away. Well, obviously... Those people, they enjoy the joy. They like the joy of Jesus, but they don't like the discipline of Jesus. And I say this because they can't seem to handle any of the heat. So they quickly exit the refiner's fire. Perhaps even as you listen, you find yourself. You can die, you look at your own heart and you say, you know what? That's kind of like me. I like the good. I don't like the bad. I, believe, I can believe God when it's good, but when it's bad, pshht, um, I turn and, I, and, I, and, and in my heart, you could almost say I reject him. Trouble and persecution just seem to be too much for my faith. So you pretty much go back, go back to believing the lies and holding fast to them while holding on to an image of what the Christian faith is all about. 
It could be, you know, it's, it's not very difficult for people to abandon the faith in their hearts, but hold a form of religious activity on the outside. It's really easy to do because we're, we're pros at it. You become an adult and you do one thing on the outside and you can be another thing on the inside. That's not too hard to do. We, we learn that trick, you know. We start to develop that pretty good in our teen years. And so we, we, we can masquerade really easy. We can come to worship because it's merely habit. It's what we do. Not because we really want to. Not because, we've, not because we love the Lord. Not because we want to worship the Lord. We come because, well, what else do we do? That's what we've done. This is kind of what we do. It's just habit. But there was joy at first. There was joy at first believing. But now that that's over and the storms have come your way, you go through the religious motions so you don't just, so you just don't want to upset the, the cart. You don't want to upset the, the life and the way it is. It's just the way it's organized. And you know what? This is a terribly scary place to be. Because a person like this no longer has a living faith. All they have is some form of Christian activity. And they just go through motions. But their hearts, hearts are dead. Now, of course, I think there's even a more probable way that many of us, especially in this room, are tempted to go. And that has to do with the next soil. In the next soil, we'll see what Jesus brings up is this, the thorny soil. In verse 14, He says, and as for those who went among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So they hear, they believe, they sprout up, but their fruit, you can see, it just doesn't get to maturity, and it's choked out. It begins to show evidence that the word is indeed planted in them. And I like how he he lists out these things that choke us, and it's so true. In all of our lives, I can guarantee you that all of us have experienced these weeds in our own hearts. The cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. Just l- Let's look at each of them in order. When it comes to cares, it doesn't take long before you realize that this world is filled with all kinds of cares. Right? We have cares about work, food, clothing, housing, vehicles, children, education, health. You name it. We have cares. This world is filled with cares. And these cares choke faith because we begin to focus our attention on these cares and not on the provision and promises of God in Christ Jesus. We get diverted and we get pulled away. As Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow, what you eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. God knows that you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of God, and these will be added to you. So that's what our Lord says to us. And so basically, so as we focus on our God, we focus on who he is, we focus on what he's done for us, we focus on loving him and loving others and all, the, all that stuff about the kingdom, what the kingdom is about. God promises to take care of us, of all those needs, of the cares. He'll take care of the cares. When our focus on the cares of our life, what do we begin doing? We begin worrying about the things we cannot change. You can't change by worrying. But we'll get focused on them. we get wrapped up in them. And it's very easy for us to get caught up in the cares of the world. And if you get caught up in the cares of the world, what does that do to your faith? 
it chokes it. You're no longer believing and resting in what God has promised He will do for you, but instead you're worrying and fretting about all these things that you can't change. And you find your faith shriveling. And then there are the riches. He says, riches. Riches are another choker to our faith. You know why? Because riches are deceitful. They promise what they can't provide. We can easily get caught up in wanting and pursuing riches because we think that with them we will be happy. We will have what we want. We'll be stress-free. We'll be able to do what we want. We'll be able to purchase as we want. We won't have to worry about the cares anymore, really, because that'll take care of the cares so often. It'll, just, it'll take care of us. So we can easily get caught up in pursuing, wanting and pursuing riches because we think that we have them, we will be happy, stress-free, and able to take care of stuff. And this is why they deceive. They're deceitful. They hold out a false promise to us. Because in reality, God says, what you need is me. That's what God says. You have all that you need in Christ Jesus. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and God gives to whom, whomever he pleases. God owns it all. It's all the money in the world. Everything in the world is, is his. He never, ever has a resource problem, ever. And you're his child. And he says, don't worry about it. But the money's low. Don't worry about it. It's all mine anyways. I'll take care of it. So he tells you, don't worry. Trust me. The only thing that pleases God is trust, is faith, clinging to him. Father, I trust you. I'm convinced that you, you're a provider. You will take care of me. And that pleases and delights God. But that's faith. And riches can choke our faith because we wander from God and we start to put more hope, more confidence, more trust in having a stack in our pocket than we do having trust in God. That can happen. Have you ever found it happening? Of course. I bet you if you're a human, you've been tempted by the lure of money. And the way you can tell if you've been sucked in with riches, if there is in your heart a belief that if you had a specific amount of money, then you start to believe that I would be less stressed, I would be happier, things would go better. I'd be, you, start, you, you have a belief that if I had more, then I could do this, and oh, and then I'd be happy. And even as you think about it, it brings joy to your heart. You're coveting, and you're lusting, and you're believing a lie. The trap, the lure of riches, they choke our faith. Because what they can, this is how they also deceive us. We think that we're believing and trusting in God because, and, and, and here's the thing, we've got lots of mula, and it seems easy to trust God. Take it away, and now what? Now you're screaming, now you're crying, now you're pounding the pavement, now you're putting your head through the wall, now, now you're having to go see the, you know, the local shrink just to get your world back together. Oh, I thought you trusted God. Oh, I do. Oh. Okay. That's what riches do. They choke our faith. They choke it. There's still more thorns here, though. He mentions one last thing, pleasures of life. 
This has to do with all those things in life that bring us pleasure. You know, food, drink, sex, power, entertainment, and on and on it goes. The stuff that brings us pleasure. It brings us pleasure and we enjoy it. And sometimes it can choke our faith. And here's why. Here's why. Because pleasure has a way of promising us life, but never completely delivering. Never fully satisfying. For example, look at, what, look at the food. Look at food. Didn't it promise if I have that, I'll have some joy, I'll have peace. All I need is just some good old comfort meal. You have it, okay, it felt good, but guess what? It's gone. And guess what? In a couple hours, you're hungry again. So it's like this temporary, momentary thing. And everything in, about pleasures of life are like that. They're good in the moment. But they're momentary. They're fleeting. They're passing. They just, last night's meal is, is gone. Let yesterday's party, no matter how good it was, guess what? It's over. On to the next one. The thing about pleasures is they're here today, gone tomorrow, and over. But you know what? We, we can live as if they're the source of life and hope and joy and fulfillment in our lives. These pleasures. So we chase after pleasures. We look to them to give to us what only God can truly give to us. And don't misunderstand me because none of these things are wrong in and of themselves. But these pleasures can choke our faith because we begin to look to them to give us what God can only give us. We trust them. We hope in them. We have our faith in them, believing that if we have them, then we will have this fullness of life. Why did God give them to us? He wants us to enjoy, to enjoy them. He wants us to give him thanks for them. And he wants us to love him and others with and through them. They're means of love. They're means of enjoyment and of praise. But if you take them beyond that, if you look to them to supply in you what only God can give, they become an idol. They are no longer in the place that God intended them to be. And it's easy for them to get there. These are the thorns, the riches, the cares, and the pleasures of life. Have you not felt them? Have you, and, and this is the thing. They have, and when they come in, they choke your life. They choke your faith. Because they cause you to doubt God's promises and put more faith and trust in them than in God. It's very easy for it to happen. And so if we're not good farmers and continually plucking the weeds that grow up in our hearts... If those weeds grow and they start to multiply, next thing you know, they choke our faith and can eventually annihilate our faith. And moving on, I want us to look at this last soil Jesus describes, and it's the good soil, which is the good prepared heart. Verse 15, as for that good soil, there are those who hearing the, wor the word hold it fast and in a good and honest, good, honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Another way of saying this is that they produce, these, these hearts, these people, they hear the word, receive it, they believe it, lay hold of it, and what comes out is fruit. And the fruit that they produce is the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. And even though Love is expressed as just one of the fruits. I think that love is actually the best summary fruit. 
You could just basically say, you know the fruit that comes out? What is it that comes out of this heart? Love. Because if you think of it, love really encapsulates the rest of the fruits of the Spirit as well. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That pretty much covers it, right? Pretty much covers what the fruit of the Spirit is. We also have the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is love. The fulfillment of all the law and the prophets is love. God is love. I think we see in this theme here. Love. Love is the fruit. This is what God is after, is cultivating. When the word comes in and we by faith lay hold of it, love starts to come out of it. That's what happens when the gospel is implanted in our hearts. But sometimes we use, when we think of the word, I don't know if this happens to you, you think of the word fruitful, and what comes to your mind is fruitfulness. We use it this way. Man, is that guy ever fruitful. And what do we mean by that? He gets a lot of stuff done. He's fruitful. That's the fruit Jesus maybe is referring to, some people think. But, you know, when we think of it this way, just think of even what Jesus himself said in the Gospels, that many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So clearly, faithfulness or fruitfulness, fruitfulness even in ministry, that's not the fruit the good heart produces here, the good soil produces. Because if fruitfulness in ministry, if, it's, if, there's, if there is not based on love, is not the kind of fruit he's talking about. Love is the fruit that comes out from the gospel root implanted in the heart. And one last thing I want to make clear is when I say the word love, I do not mean warm sentiments of the heart. Because sometimes we can get that confused. Someone isn't loving because they feel sorry for others, or cry at sad movies, or feel weepy when something sad happens, or feel bad that others aren't treated nicely. That isn't love. Sometimes we think, man, I must be so loving. I watch this, this movie about the dog dying, and I just break out weeping. Um, no, that's not love. That's, those are sentiments of the heart, and they're different. Because you know what love does? Love writes a check and gives it anonymous, anonymously. Love takes food to the neighbor and would prefer they didn't know who sent it. Love stops to care for the needs of someone hurting. Love looks for ways to help and serve. Love insists that others go first. Love holds the door for others. Love honors the elderly. Love thinks of ways to encourage. Love uses our homes, our cars, our food, and our resources to bless and to, and to serve and to give and to, and to minister to others. That's what love does. Love is active, and love seeks to do good to the people around you. So if love is what is produced, this is the fruit. What's at the root? What's causing this? Why is this, why is this the fruit and what is causing this? Well, the text says in that verse 15, hearing the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart. 
So they hear it and they hold it fast in a honest and good heart. So faith hears that you are a sinner and believes it to be true. Faith hears that God will justly punish uh, with sin and death and it trembles. It then hears about what Jesus has done for sinners and how he has paid the penalty for those who've sinned. And then rejoices and praises God because of his grace. And because faith believes, believes one to be forgiven, loved, accepted, made holy, and given life eternal. Solely and simply and completely because of the work of Jesus Christ and his love poured out on us and that alone. And when you believe that, what do you think comes out of that? Love. If you believe, if you sit here this morning and you're convinced of who you are before a holy God, and you see, given that's the scenario, and then you see what Jesus has done for you and how he's loved you and given himself for you and sacrificed and laid down his life and bled and died, and you look at that and you, and you believe that that was for you, and you believe it, and you believe you're forgiven, you're accepted, you're made holy, you're cleansed, you're adopted, you're brought into his family, you're, just, you're, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and you believe that. What does that do to you? It fills your heart with love. And when your heart's filled with love, what are you going to do? Love. This is how it works. Faith, faith lays hold of the promises of God, is convinced of it, and then rejoices and gives thanks and praise to God for the love shown to them. Let me ask you this morning, where are you at? Has it become clear to you that your heart is like pavement? Or is it more like the stony ground? Or how about a heart that's being choked by thorns? Or perhaps your heart, you're receiving the word, you're believing the word, and it's having an impact, and the fruit's coming out of your life. Or perhaps you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're sitting here and you know that there was a time that you had sincere faith. You really did believe. But you're being choked out right now by the thorns of life by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. And you know you need to do some weeding. Wherever you're at, and I don't know where you're at, I pray that you do business with God this morning. I pray that your faith be genuine. And you take hold and lay hold of the word of God and his promises. And become absolutely convinced that they are true. And everything else that the world is presenting to you is a lie. That's what faith is. It's a lie. The world is constantly bombarding you and telling you things to believe. And if you believe this, because this will set you free. Believe this, because this will fulfill. Believe this, and and this this will deliver you. You say, no, that's a lie. It's all a lie. God has promised His word is true. And you cling to it. And you hold fast to it. That's faith. That's faith born in a good heart. 
And that's something I can't give you. Nor for the person to your right or to your left, they can't give you. They can't give you that. Only God above can give you that. By the Spirit working in you, can you lay hold of that promise? I can present to you the promise. I can hold it. I can try to stuff it down your mouth. I can try to shove it up your nose. I can do whatever I want. But I can't get you to, to believe it. That's something only God can do. And so this morning, ask yourself the tough question, do I believe Do I lay hold to God's promises or do I lay hold to the lies? And if you're holding on to lies, what do you need to do? You need to do some weeding. You need to get rid of it. You need to confess those lies, reject those lies, and turn and lay hold of the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Don't leave here this morning, please, thinking that you will deal with things later. That is one of the greatest deceptions the enemy will ever play. Because he can distract you in two minutes. You turn and leave out of here, you got a couple minutes before you start talking to people, and all kinds of stuff will come in and will rob and take away what it is perhaps that the seed was meant to be doing in your life. Make sure that you do business with God this morning. And if you have weeds to pull out, pull them out. Don't be in a hurry to leave and get going on with the day. This is far too important. Make sure your faith is holding fast to the promises of God and not to the lies of the world. Amen. Father, Oh, Father, have your way with us. Examine us and know us. And I don't know where everybody is at at all. But I ask, Father, that you would work mightily in their hearts even now, convicting them of sin, showing them of thorny areas perhaps where they've, are cho- areas that are choking our faith, exposing and melting and tilling the hard hearts. and removing the rocky soil so that we might believe and hold fast to your word and be absolutely convinced of it. Father, please, do this in all of our hearts. Do it for your glory. And do it because we ask you in the name of your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.